Welcome to Rooted Within with Lily and Dan, a podcast that shines a spotlight on positive change makers, sharing their stories of legacy, inspiration, and impact. Each episode, Lily and Dan will speak to individuals who have made their dreams a reality, exploring their journeys, mindset shifts, and what motivated them. Join us as we explore the lives of those who are making a difference and let their stories inspire you to achieve your own goals. If you do respect them and understand they're a sellable entity, then why do you treat them so disposable? Yeah. Forget about just your empathy and morals because we know that's subjective when it comes to human beings, unfortunately. We sit down and I said, well, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm really getting into producing. And my goal is to produce Middle Eastern content, but also Western commercially viable films that we can put people in that wouldn't normally get certain roles. Women, people of color, obviously Arabs that aren't playing the terrorists, you know, et cetera. There's nothing more debilitating to us than going against the pack. Mm. And so if we can create a stronger pack of people that says this is not okay, then we can be that change. Mm. And it takes... You know, it doesn't just take one person, maybe one person to cast that first stone, but we need to create a community. Rooted Within with Lily and Dan. Dan. Good afternoon, Lily. We're back. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. I'm very excited for today's well, episode. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an old time friend we got in the studio. It is, but you know what? Like, I have to. I keep apologising because like we kind of disconnect and then we bump into each other and then it's like, ah, yeah, let's go for coffee, let's catch up, and then that's like Dubai, weeks, though, months, years pass by. <laughs> but that's Dubai, though, isn't it? It is indeed. It is. I'm very honoured. <laughs> Um, to welcome Miranda Davidson into our podcast studio today. How are you? I'm good. I'm always so emotional when I see you because, yeah, we've seen each other through this. So how many we, how many years are we talking here? 15. Yeah, about 15. yeah, literally when I arrived in Dubai, yeah. I was started working at Bareface and then you came doing some um, acting workshops yeah. with Michelle Dana. Yeah, yeah, and I just kind of cold emailed them and Dan and I would be there till three in the morning. I think we've yeah. got a thank Bareface for a lot of friendships by the sounds of yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's how right. we connected as well. Yeah. And a few others. But it's really interesting because it's just like this kind of like force of, I don't know, Elena's like just <laughs> entered the Bareface <laughs> office and she was like acting coach, like into obviously the movie industry and just straight away was like this big powerful character within our office and there's a, a connection ever since. Yeah, but I think you and I connected because we're both like that. I'm not sure everyone else appreciated <laughs> Probably not. It's very, very noisy. <laughs> Plus, you lived on my sofa for a while. Yeah, yep. When I was in between apartments. Yep. Yeah. It's been a long, long journey. Yeah. Where are you now? Yeah. It's all changed. Yeah. So, um, so I basically emailed Bareface out of the blue and I wanted to coach acting here. And because um, at the time there wasn't really an acting industry. Yeah. They had the film festival and stuff, but there wasn't mm. much. And I was TV presenting at the time. And I kind of said, Hey, you can represent me exclusively. Here's my show reel. I, but I want to teach acting and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Hold so, on. What made you decide to come to Dubai? Why Dubai? And how'd you find Bareface? How do you find acting? That's got to be a whole other podcast. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, I was about 25 years old. I was living in Los Angeles. So when I moved to Los Angeles, I wanted to be, I was a figure skater and a dancer. And so that was, yeah, because we wanted to do a dance convention originally. So that's my background. And when you live at that time, especially, LA was just the movie industry Mm. and dance and things like that. But it wasn't as decentralized as it is now. Mm. So I was kind of just looking for work. And I worked for Kirstie Alley and I worked for Warner Brothers and I worked for Wentworth Miller's, um, management company. But that was just because I was like, you know, a young person looking for work. And so 
I just kind of stumbled into this life. I was not planned. For all the people that were planning to be in the film industry, I just stumbled. (laughs) Um, And then I represented talent. Um, I moved to New York and worked for Next Management, where we represented like Miranda Mm. Kerr and people like that, Molly Sims. And so I always kind of ended up in this talent management side. So I kind of had, even though I was a performer, I also understood the business side Mm. of it. Was it something you were like naturally good at, you were naturally interested in? Like what was that kind of gravity to that side of the business? Well, I probably think like you, well, Dan, one day at whatever time in the morning, beer first, like, so when I went to circus school, I was like, er, excuse me. Slow down. <laughs> so I think, and I don't know how other people feel about this, when you've been a performer, um, I think performers, as long as they were okay with kind of hanging up their dancing shoes, so yeah. to speak, you know, some people always wanted to be on the mm-hmm. other side. They, you know, those that can't do teach kind of mentality, but I was really ready to go to the business side because I it's wanted a natural to, I, transition. Yeah, it was a natural transition. But I think I have that empathy. For, for In fact, I just came back from Cannes Film Festival and I was with a producer friend of mine who's only been on the corporate side. And we were meeting all these actors I knew and just a lot of gratitude towards what a safe and emotionally and physically safe environment I make for them. And we were walking and he said, you know, I've never really looked at things from that side. And the corporates are very much on the corporate side. And I think because Dan and I come from a performance background and willingly shifted to the business side, we have that empathy. Explain, Explain what you mean when they said, when they thanked you for that. What was it that you were giving them? Well, you know, it's funny. And it's bizarre to me. And I don't know how it is in like the live performing industry as Mm. much anymore. But people really talk about talent often as commodities. Yeah, commodities. Mm. It's kind of disposable, Very disposable yeah. extremely disposable. I mean, it's something that I've really been talking about from a health and safety point of view within the region. And I know yeah. you've talked about it where we have to have some health and safety rules. These are human beings yeah. and with emotions, with emotions. And, and well, and also people die on set. Yeah. Look what happened to, I mean, Rust is the most famous. Mm. That was um, the one with, um, Alec Baldwin. Yeah. When it accidentally got shot, shot by a prop. Because there was live ammunition on the set. But the, the, the scary thing about that was the way it was written and the way it was dealt with was as if, Oh yeah, well, it was a mistake. It just happened. We'll move right. on. And I'm like, someone died. Someone died. Someone's dead. But it's Someone's... very similar in the live performance in years as well because, you know, Cirque, for example, there's been deaths of performers, yeah. acrobats, you know, people that fell from height because things weren't done properly. Yeah. No, I know because I, I, I met a gentleman that was doing a Cirque du Soleil performance in Saudi and he was producing it and he was like, something fell in, in rehearsals and he's like, no, we cannot go. This has to be fixed because literally people's lives are in mm. danger. And, you know, we talked about before we started, I think things have changed maybe in the social media world or we look at, I don't say we, but people, some people look at other human beings as just sellable commodities mm. or not. Mm. And like, okay, moving on. But it is something that's been kind of endemic within anything to do with like the talent industry mm. because they just look at as talent as being disposable or replaceable. Yeah. Like if you can perform this, then we're going to get somebody else that can perform it as well. And not only that, that, your only worth is very two-dimensional. And yeah. most performers, you know, I've dealt with, even when I was a, a representing models, I always said, I, you know, I help raise entrepreneurs. Mm. These people are their own, you know, money managers. I mean, unless till they get to like a Cindy Crawford level, right? But, you know, she's a businesswoman. Jennifer yeah. Lopez is a businesswoman. businesswoman. Yeah. You know, um, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, uh, you look at Ron Howard or Clint Eastwood. These are business people. Steven Spielberg, as yeah. much of a creative genius as he is, he's a businessman. Yeah. And these aren't just two-dimensional characters. And then I think that people see performance from a very shallow perspective. And they're happy to be seen by someone that doesn't. Mm. And let's be honest, in the film business, what's the first question you ask when someone goes, hey, there's a new movie out? Who's the star? Who's the star? Yeah. 
you know? And I think there's an argument for that. Yeah. You know, it's not just, yes, there's something to be said for everyone's time is worth something. But then if I'm the driving force, if people are going out to watch, you know, um, the next Marvel or Mission Impossible because Scarlett Johansson's in it or, you know, um, Tom Cruise, they are, they, if you do respect them and understand they're a sellable entity, then why do you treat them so disposable? Yeah. Forget about just your empathy and morals because we know that's subjective when it comes mm. to human beings, unfortunately. But even from a business point of view, let's just say, yeah. you know, even if your only care is your bottom line, health and safety should be number one. Why do you think that is, that they don't care? I can speak, well, events are similar with film. I think there's a couple of things. One is it moves very quickly. Yeah. Second of all, what I noticed when I went to the business side, I just thought everyone got in because they were creatives. Originally, it was very naive that it's a business opportunity that drives most of these people, whether they're the lawyers or the corporate execs. I can't tell you how many times I deal with big corporate execs that have zero clue how a film is made. Yeah. I'm like, I was shocked in the and beginning. The, and they're making very important decisions. Making very important yeah. decisions with zero clue how operations. I mean, I always said in the restaurant and, and bar industry, I said, how many people lose so much money? Because, well, you don't need a degree for it. I don't need a piece of paper that says I can run a restaurant. But I tell you what, the busboy knows why. Yeah. The waitress knows why. The bartender, because they understand the volatility of those operations. There's a, have you seen this thing called the marshmallow challenge? No. So Google it and you can go on YouTube and, and, and it's a corporate game where they take these spaghetti, hard pieces, you know, dry pieces of spaghetti. And you, it's timed as a corporate, you know, role play or not role play, um, team building game. Yep. And then you have to build it. Whoever builds the tallest one can put the marshmallow, the big marshmallow on top without it falling over is the winner. Do you know who's the worst at it? CEOs. The CEOs. They can't do it. And you know who's the best at it? Other than engineers. Engineers are good, thank God. Who? Like kindergartners or something like that. Because they learn to prototype. They learn to try. Yeah. Where CEOs tend to make big, huge plans and then execute. Yeah. As opposed to kind of seeing what works and what doesn't and kind of building it from there. Play. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You, you go to YouTube. They did a whole analysis. Done. 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 Marshmallow Challenge. You've been a massive advocate within, especially within your field, within, I guess, like the film production industry, advertising industry, for improving standards and for really driving that, especially in the region, for some of the yeah. projects that you worked on. I guess, tell us a little bit about that. You know, I'm just, you know, it's hard because, like, say I, I come from, you know, America and, and Los Angeles, obviously, it very much has a standard that governs the film industry, and it's, it's very nuanced sort of system. Um, and then, of course, you have unions and things like that. But here, you have some really good health and safety and, um, you know, uh, workers' rights within the corporate sector. But once you get into film, some of it flies a little bit under the radar because they're not really your employees, mm. right? Yeah. So if you're, you know, XYZ production company and you hire Miranda Davidson and Miranda Davidson is saying, hey, this isn't an okay health and safety standard. We're just going to get rid of Miranda Davidson. Yeah. And it happens all the time. And um, given my, what I do in the casting side, and also we do a lot of background, I'm responsible sometimes for thousands of people. I was going to say, because some of the projects that you've produced that I know of recently mm -hmm. over the last, what, 10 years or so that mm -hmm. you've been here have been significant productions. Yeah. So some of the, well, I'm getting into the producing side, but on the casting side, when we did War Machine, we did 2,500 background. That's crazy. I came off of a film in Saudi where our mandate was over 10,000 background. I've probably cast. When you say background, that's background artists. Background that's like artists, the, the people yeah, in the background yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah, of the background. movie. So I always tell people, I'm like, I manage 
more people than the entire production sometimes. Mm. And the people that are least invested in it, I would say crew, it's their career. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If nothing else, they're worried about their reputation. These are people that just want to show up, work, have some fun, put a little money in their pocket. Hopefully get seen on screen. Hopefully get seen on screen. Like, there I am, there, there I am. Yeah. Oh, yep. Split second. <laughs> people screenshot it, circle it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's really, I enjoy doing background because I've learned a lot because we're not dealing always with wannabe actors. Mm-hmm. I have, oh gosh, the powerful stories I've heard. When we did War Machine, I had to go out and interview a bunch of Afghans that were here um, as refugees. And, and they, they had come over when the Soviets invaded and there was a big refugee program. And we had to interview them through a translator. And it was like story after story yeah. of heartbreak of, I've seen grown men cry. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Talk about their family being killed in front of them and, and things like this. And like at one point, the guys that were working for me had a spreadsheet that showed me their faces and their ages and a bunch of stats on these guys. And I was like, you guys are making a mistake. There's no way this guy is 30. He's clearly 50. They're like, no, they've just lived aged. that hard of a life. Yeah. And so I've gotten to learn so much about culture and people and just the human existence that maybe to the corporate suits, some of these people are just commodities. Yeah. But to me, they're people with lives and stories. Well, that was one of the things that really struck me when we first met is like you really threw yourself into culture and mm-hmm. to meeting people and to really understanding the environment and the place that you were living in now. Yeah. Well, I think that... It's probably because of my parents' hippie activist background. <laughs> like hippie activist parents. <laughs> my, my hippie activist parents. But, you know, I think to be an actor, to be a director, to, to be on that side of the film specifically, um, you have to really appreciate the human experience. You know, I was, when I did, so a movie, shameless plug that's out right now, Kandahar, I did in Saudi Arabia. And we were filming this movie that takes place partly in Afghanistan just as Taliban took over. Mm. And so there's this massive political shift. And I was dealing with trying to cast people for this film and the conversations that were going on. And I actually had to go with somebody at one point that was like, why won't they do it? Or why won't they? And I was like, he's like, this one guy shall not be named, um, was saying, but we're going to make this kid a big star. And I just lost my temper. I go, this kid's family's worried about if they're going to die. Yeah. These are life and death decisions. He doesn't care about being a star right now. He doesn't care about being a star. He cares about an education for his child. And God bless uh, the director, Rick Roman, who's a real, like, humanist. I think that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. (laughs) He's got a really, he's just really empathetic human. And I remember I wrote an email and said, hey, we got to talk about this political situation. And we get on a Zoom and he says... I don't care. People come first. Yeah. This is just a movie. I will not put anybody's life in jeopardy to make my film. And like from that point on, anything he asked for, he said, jump. I said, how high? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I understood that he understood the weight yeah. of the conversation we were having. And he shared the same values that you've got. Absolutely. Yeah. And not a, I think directors page. are generally pretty good yeah. because they're very invested in the story. I've been lucky enough to work with, you know, wonderful directors. Even like Michael Bay has this really bad reputation for being a tyrant. But Michael and I got along great. And Mm -hmm. he was, I I have this quote from one of the producers that I wish I could use in my PR. And he said, the only thing Michael didn't complain about on this movie was your background. You should be proud. Wow. And it's because I care. I care about what I do. You do. So this is why I'm going to jump on to, I guess. Yeah, segue (laughs) to to why we invite you into into the podcast. 
you sent a very powerful email um, to the industry, I believe. Yeah, because a bunch of people CC. Yeah, I was one of the recipients. I read that email. It really stuck with me. I'd like yeah. you to share that email or the, the context, context of that email. What led to what it? Led to it. So I had, I was on a business trip. I, like I said, I'm getting into film producing and I had flown to Jordan to meet with um, a potential line producer. And then on the flight from Jordan to Riyadh, or sorry, no, Jordan to Riyadh. And then I came back to Dubai and back to Kobar for the Saudi Film Festival. And that was all within maybe a couple weeks time. So on my flight, first of all, from Jordan to Riyadh, I'm sitting on the plane and this gentleman, you know, as one does in the plane, oh, what are you, where are you going? Why are you going to Riyadh? And we start talking and he's a lawyer and I tell him what I do and we're talking. And um, somehow we had segued into something about social media. And I said, I'm not really into social media. I'm pretty, I don't really post. And, mm. and he goes, do you have naked pictures on there? Sorry, what? Like unsolicited. Just out of the blue. And, and this I, is a guy you met on the on plane. plane. Just talking. Just because you sat next to him. Just because I sat next to him. And, you know, I, I was modest. I mean, this is the thing that drives me crazy is that I was modestly dressed. I'm, you know, 46 years Nothing old. Nothing about you was There's no, We got to get rid of this narrative that has anything to do with how we mm. dress, first of all. Yeah. So anyway, so I go to Riyadh and... Just on that moment, what, what, how do you respond to that? Like, how did you diffuse that, that environment? It's so funny. With, let me get to that because okay. that question was asked to me yeah. in the series of this. Okay. I mean, in that situation, what do you do? You're on a plane. You can't move. Well, I can't I mean, move. You could probably. Well, you gonna, ask, but... Do you know what I mean? You've got like an hour left of this flight, you know, full flight. What are you going to do? Yeah. And I mean, you know, awkward laugh, change the subject kind mm. of thing. So then I go to uh, Riyadh and I'm with some work associates and we're in a, like a green room area because some of the work associates I knew, they're quite powerful. We're doing speeches and that's why it, I come to Riyadh to, to see their speeches. And there's other people in the industry that I didn't know. Now, one of the gentlemen was trying to speak to this woman in French and he was struggling with his French. And the other gentleman was fluent in French. And he goes in front of everybody. And now, mind you, I don't know oh, most of these people. He goes, he's saying he's your girlfriend or you're his girlfriend. And then the guy turns, well, maybe she's your girlfriend. And someone's like, well, a pretty girl like you. And I... My head almost exploded. I was like, well, she's pretty smart too. Yeah, it's not just about how she looks. And then all of a sudden, like, it got quiet. Now, the problem with things like that isn't that I mind someone calling me pretty, but you have just contextualized me mm. in a work situation based solely on my looks. Mm. It's not that we're amongst friends or amongst colleagues that understand the context of who we are. And you're essentially strangers. Yeah, exactly. And work strangers on top of that. Yeah. You know, then all of a sudden, am I just contextualized as the arm candy, the, you know, whatever it is? Why are my looks mm. being brought into this conversation at all? And go back to Dubai, go to Saudi. I run into um, this, this guy that used to represent Amar Wakid. And I was like, oh my gosh, hi, how are you? We were at the American Chamber of Commerce at a very beautiful event. He says, oh, Miranda, how are you? I haven't seen him in like 13 years. He's this French guy. And he puts his arm all the way around. Mind you, not that it should matter, but I'm wearing my wedding ring. You know, don't hide the fact that I'm married, first of all, but irrelevant. Yeah. You know, still inappropriate. Matter, yeah. Arm around me, walks in, starts telling me, this is my wife. Everyone meet my wife. You know, and then some woman goes, oh, is this the pretty blonde you've been talking about? Well, I haven't seen this guy in 13 years. So he wasn't talking about me, first of all. And you're trying to be his wingman. Yeah. now and be like, oh, and people say I look younger than my age. 
and he looks much older than me. So I'm sure she thought there was a very large age gap and thought I was some ingenue that was, you know, and, and even if I was, why am I being contextualized again as nothing more than a two-dimensional face and body? Yeah. So anyways, I kind of was like, okay, he's been drinking. I'm just going to let this slide. And then the next day, we were supposed to have a meeting about work down in the lobby of the hotel because that's what you do at film festivals, right? Everyone kind of yeah. gets in the lobby and whatnot. And we sit down and I said, well, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm really getting into producing. And my goal is to produce Middle Eastern content, but also Western commercially viable films that we can put people in that wouldn't normally get certain roles. Women, people of color, obviously Arabs that aren't playing the terrorists, you know, et cetera. And this is what I think my lot in life is since I'm American and I I know the Western market very well and Mm. that I have such a relationship with the Middle East. And he goes, oh, no, you can't do that. He goes, Miranda, you're just, you're not connected enough. This is above what you're capable of. And, um, but, but it's okay. You know, you should really focus on some local things. And, you know, I can help you. I'm going to introduce you to some people. And he names some people that I didn't even know. And, um, but you have to do me a favor. Oh, God. He's like, you, I want you to escort me to Cannes. Yes. I'll fly you on a business class ticket. And you can be with me uh, for Cannes. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't really know what to say. And they start sending it. And then the meeting lasted 15 minutes. And I go back to my room and I realize, and I know we're on the same floor. And it was so triggering to me. So I go and he goes, oh, and, and you can be with me for all of this festival. And you'll be, you'll be by my side the entire festival. I'll have someone contact you. And so this wonderful, amazing, lovely actor named Aziz El Garbawi, he's a uh, Saudi actor and another actor named Hakim Jama and a producer we know named Heather Grace mm-hmm. um, and another director named Noaf El Janahi. And I say their names because they're such important people to me. I was with Aziz and I told him what was going on because it was like, you have to process these things. Yeah. People think that you should just react right away, but you're kind of like, no, you're, stunned. Stunned. You, you're, you're stunned, stunned is a yeah. good word. Yeah. And Aziz asked that same question. He goes, what do you do in these situations? And I said, Aziz, in all these years, I don't know. This is something which you've encountered throughout your entire career. Entire career. Okay. Entire career. Not okay, sorry. And so I said, Aziz, I really don't want to be here. Please, can you get me out of here? And he helped walk me in my car, and I couldn't leave the room for like two days. I was, every fiber of my being felt demeaned, felt diminished, felt scared, literally. I'm like, okay, what happens if I see him in a hallway? What happens if he's had a few drinks? His room was down the hall from my room in the hotel. And I made someone come and walk me downstairs. And those four people that I mentioned were the most amazing, wonderful human beings that completely validated my experience, completely stood up for me, got me in touch with the person that was running the film festival. And so the email in which you got and many other people got was contextualized as for the men in my life that treat me as an equal, that treat me as somebody that has something valid to say and bring to the table. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And we need more men like you. And we don't just need men that validate us and respect us and, and treat us as something valuable in any given conversation. We need you guys to stand up to those other men. And do you think people are standing up enough? No. So, first of all, the email. What brought you to do it now? 
Like, like you said, and all the it's, it's something you've that you've had for so long. You've gone, yeah. yeah. But what was what it was that, that changed this time? It's yeah. funny you say that. Now, I didn't think about it. So you just asked this question. Mm. I think it's because for probably one of the first times in my life, I had men and women that, that stood, stood up for by you. my side, and that was essentially the, the people. Yes, you that I just mentioned that said it is wrong. We've got your back. My one friend Noaf said. You got to ask these Arab women what to do. I think they would just take a shoe and smack him. <laughs> Probably. And they took it seriously. I yeah. wrote a very serious email and CC'd a couple of those people. And um, they completely addressed it. Did you, did you feel happen. heard at that moment? Who did you send the email to? I sent it to the head of the film festival. Mm-hmm. I CC'd Heather Grace and I CC'd Noah Feljanahi. And there was more personal follow-up than an official follow-up. But I was assured that, you know, I would never have to deal with that again. So the email you sent them was letting them know what happened? With the play-by-play, because what I didn't want, and anyone that's been in this situation, a lot of people that are, well, you look at the Harvey Weinstein case, and you look at people that are very manipulative. um, Well, all I wanted to do was help, you know? Or, um, oh, you know how these people are. See, he had perceived power over me. He really doesn't in the industry have power over me. But especially if that person does have social and economic power over you in the workplace, they very easily can minimize you to, oh, that's just a girl that's trying to, you know, make me look bad. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, one of the best examples of this, and you were saying before this started, and it's funny because I was on the plane to Cannes, I Mm. think it was, and I watched the movie She Said, Mm. and I think everyone should watch that movie. And both tears were pouring down my face, and I felt so empowered after that. And Every conversation you hear in that, if you have ever been subjected to, whether it's because of your race, your religion, your sexual persuasion, or your gender, if you've ever had someone assert power over you and, and manipulate and abuse that power, and you hear the conversations that go on about the fear of losing their job, the fear of being ostracized, the fear of being slandered in the press, um, and those things are real. Yeah. And it's horrible. And it's horrible. It's one of the worst feelings you could ever possibly have, right? Because it's, it's, it's having no license over yourself. Totally. 100%. You know, the one thing we all have that mm. we cherish is the, the control and the power to be our own narrative yeah. and to make decisions for ourselves. When you're in a situation where that's taken away, yeah. it's like, then what do you have? Like you're, you're, the ground is shaky underneath you. Totally, 100%. Horrible. And that you don't have control over your own, you know, your finances mm. are attached to it, mm. your, um, your social powerless. standing, your community, your everything becomes attached to this and you feel totally mm. powerless. And, you know, the other thing I don't like is that there's this constant boys will be boys narrative. And yeah, and I think that even I hear women go, oh, you know, men are just like that. I'm like, no, they're not. No, they are not. We allow them to. Yeah. And they're conditioned and even within their male social circles. Mm -hmm. And I always say when my male friends and and obviously my husband, I'm always very clear that I keep a certain profile man close to me. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that respect me and they're Mm -hmm. ones that understand my disposition and ones that support me and all those things. And I do that by design. Mm -hmm. Not only because I can't stand people that aren't like that, but I need to remind myself that I don't need to accept that that there are good men out there mm. and there are plenty of them. Mm. And we need to empower those kind of men like Dan, um, like but, Noah, like, you know, all these people I talked about, we need to empower them as well to say, you know what, thank you. Mm. Thank you because you have a community of men that also try to machoize, yeah. you know, 
uh, degrading women mm. and lo- quote locker room talk. <laughs> so, so I've got two questions on yeah, that one. Go, so go, like, go. what more do men need to do? And well, secondly, how can you wanna, empower just, them? Before we do that, because they're very powerful. Before we get to that, I just want to get the timeline of of what the the emails that you did. So you sent one email to um, the Cannes Film Festival to let them know exactly what happened and they were really supportive. It wasn't Cannes, it was, that was the Saudi Film the Festival. The Saudi yeah. Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And then you did another email, mm. which the likes of Dan and mm. others received. Mm. When was that and what made you do that? Uh, it, like, well, you said it's as a result of all the support you got. So I was in such a, like, this very powerful emotional state that I think, maybe it was before I left Saudi. Mm. I think it was before, maybe right when I got back, I think I wrote that email because my gratitude that I wasn't alone mm-hmm. because I have faced these things alone many times. Actually, funny story. Oh, funny, ironic story. I was 22 years old working for Kirstie Alley and she was dating a guy named James Wilder who was on Melrose Place. Mm-hmm. And Kirstie, despite you know other things I disagree with with her, was actually very much a very cool, very supportive woman that I looked up to. Uh, she treated me very well. Well, she was on this show, Veronica's Closet, and she left. And I was stuck with James Wilder, who did all sorts of weird, um, you, like I said, just, just leveraging his power over me uh, to the point that I resigned. And she was shocked that I resigned because I was such a good assistant. And she tried to get me back. Well, what he did was what we talked was said, well, she did this and she, without going to the whole long story and try to manipulate things that had happened as if I was pursuing him. And it only made sense because I was this young girl from Minneapolis in LA and he was the star. Right. Obviously I was just trying to, luckily she was smarter and she was wiser. Yeah. Um, And she called me and she asked me a few questions and I was really burned out by then. I was young and I just Mm. said, Kirsty, I said, this is your boyfriend. I'm just an assistant. I just, I just wanted to go home at that point. And, and, you know, she was gracious and she was wonderful. And I can't, so when I left the job, so I resigned. I can't tell you how many people, despite me saying how miserable I was, despite the people I confided what he was doing to me, said, well, why did you leave the job? Don't do that. Or come on, how did you get fired? Just tell us. And I was going, didn't you hear what I was going through? Didn't you hear me? I mean, people come from all over the world to LA to get a job like I had with yeah. them. You should be grateful. She was an A-lister at the time. I should be grateful. Mm-hmm. I should just shut up and, you know, say yes, sir, no, sir. And my father, in all of his toils, said to me, I am proud of you. Nice. And he said, I'm Good not dad. proud of you for getting the job. I am proud of you that your worth was more. Yeah. And that you walked away from that job. Wow. But he was one of many that said I should have just been grateful to have the job. Yeah. Mm. Going back to the email that you said, yeah. what was the reaction to that? Did anyone respond? Like, Yeah, well, obviously you responded very to the post, you know. How'd you decide who you were sending it to? Um, and I probably left some people off that I should have sent it to, but I just looked at the men in my life and women, mm-hmm. because also women can be pretty awful in these situations. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had a woman in Saudi, a woman, not a man, tell me, and I was in a turtleneck and stretch pants with my hair pulled back and a mask on because it was during COVID tell me that I was dressed inappropriately and that's why the men were looking at me, despite what? the fact it was covered from neck to ankle. So women can be pretty awful too. Mm, yeah. they can. So I, I, there were women included on it and, and it was just like, just a real gratitude of like, thank you. I want you to know that you guys are seen and heard also. Yeah. You know, the men in my life that have supported me, stood by me and respected me as an equal. And, you know, I've had a lot of women help my career. I've also had a lot of men help my career. And, and, and be friends and be genuine friends to me. 
that I think that they deserve to be honored as well mm-hmm. and be seen. And as Dan said, the response? Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I got all sorts of different responses. Um, obviously, you asked me to come on the podcast. I was just saying because yeah. you, you try to say how to say this nicely. <laughs> you, you're quite outspoken. You know, in many I ways. Think that's and, a compliment. It's a good way. You're like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't want to come across as being, yeah, read or anything. But you've always been very passionate about your beliefs and your values and what you stand for and what's right mm. and about justice. Um, and that really came through in the in the email that you sent. Mm. Um, it was very direct, straight to the point, but it's very passionate. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I'm this not naturally blonde, but blonde hair-ish white girl with blue eyes. And something I talked about was I am acutely aware of my privilege. Mm. I'm acutely aware, although I didn't grow up with money, although I don't have a formal education, I am acutely aware of both my gifts as well as my obstacles. And I have seen um, racism firsthand. I've seen sexism firsthand. I've seen classism, ageism. And, excuse me, growing up working class, I was not sheltered from that. And, you know, my parents were the state caucus coordinators in 84 and 88 um, for Jesse Jackson. And yeah, so we had, and it was really interesting, and I really respect my parents for this. My parents, it made me a bit naive, but it was okay because the world taught me where they said, they never said, oh, these people are marginalized, Miranda. They actually didn't have the conversation with me because it was backed by the Lavender Stripe, which is what we know to be um, LGBTQ now. Mm -hmm. Um, It was backed by, uh, the the rainbow was, you know, uh, red for Indians, yellow for Far East Asians, um, you know, uh, black for African-American. You know, so that was why it was called the Rainbow Coalition. And so my parents, they were just people. These were just people that came and went. and, And some of them were women and some of them were men and some of them were Congress people. And, you know, there was no difference that we didn't even have that conversation. And yes, it made me a little bit naive, but I'm glad I grew up just looking at people as people. So it was shocking to me to see people treated as anything different than just people. Yeah. If that makes sense. Question for you, Dan. Go on. So you received a, when you received the email saying, thank you for what you're doing, how did that make you feel? Uh, Wow, that's a very good question. Um... I'm not too sure. It made me, it made me question things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow. I'm just trying to put it into the context. It w- I was surprised by the email. I wasn't expecting it, but then I took the time to read it. I was actually quite shocked that it needed to be sent. Yeah. I think the, that's probably, the, the, that's probably. There has to be a thank you for yeah. you being. Like, you, it's like, why, why would somebody need to say thank you for being human? Yeah. Which being normal. Like, I've never, I've never, I was going to say I've never encountered kind of like sexism or, you know, inappropriate behavior in workplace. But actually I have, like, we work in an industry where it's rife. Right. Yeah. I just think from a personal perspective, my values just don't align to that completely. And I was mm. like, well, why, why are we even, why, why should we still have to address this in this day and age? Yeah. Like, it shouldn't be needed. Well, it's still, why even, would, every time it happens to me, I feel the same way. I'm like, exactly. are we still talking about this? But then also, as well, like, I'm from a maybe a, a privileged point of view as well, where I've never personally encountered it. I've right. never been put in that position where I've been judged purely based upon looks or the, my gender. Right. And I've oh, been, wow. you know, disadvantaged for, for a project now. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's hard for me to fully understand what that must feel like. like. It's, just, it's just something we well, just... It's funny you say that. It's... Because men don't, I mean, men do encounter this. Right, but you're also a, a white British male. Yeah. Mm. And that, you know, which yeah. is the reality. And I'm not putting you down. You're, you're great at what you do. And, yeah. and that's the problem. When someone goes, yes, but you're privileged. It's like, it doesn't discount your obstacles. Your context is just different. And that's yeah. why I said, 
as a white American, I carry American passport. You know, I have blue eyes. I'm middle-class educated. I am acutely aware that I am judged differently than an Indian or a Latina or whatever it is. And I think that's wrong. And I don't think that me thinking that's wrong, that I am put on, is is right or that, (laughs) exactly. And it doesn't take away my struggle. Me going through what I went through doesn't go, well, Dan, you're a white male. You've never had to deal with this. And you don't go, well, you don't know what I've been through. It's like, but then wow, if, I if really, he does, I, yeah. no. this, this is where, where I start getting a little bit annoyed as well. Because mm. if he does and says, yeah, but I've also been through, it's like, you're not allowed to, you're now being precious, you know, because you're white, you're privileged, you're not allowed to have any. Your own journey. You're yeah. not allowed mm. to have your own you're journey. You're just not subjected to my now, journey. Now you're, you're, you're yeah. not being compassionate enough to the Indian person, to the this person. It's like, no, hold on a minute. So I'm just going back Everyone's to you. I'm, I'm sorry, I've been, thinking, I've been pondering mm. about your question. <laughs> yeah. When I got that email, I felt compelled to reach out. Mm, yeah, because yeah. I think I did immediately. Yeah, you did. Pretty much, I was like, you know, thank. You. I, I think I can't remember what I said, but it's long lines. You know, thank you for sending. Very powerful. Um, didn't go into it in too much detail, but then it was also because we have a platform here with a podcast. So I was like, I would like to know more about this. Mm. Well, I think too. I mean, maybe I'm just reading into this. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah, we don't talk that often. Mm-hmm. True. Very if true. I write an email like that, I think Dan knows something happened. Mm. That is exactly it. He knew there was a reason. For, for, for that's, I think that's why it's very powerful. It's like for the fact that you had to do that and that it happened. As somebody who, as I mentioned, you know, you can be outspoken. You're very vocal in terms of what, what, what's right. For it to have got to that point, that, that's quite serious. I, I think, you know, that's, I that's think a, if a, anyone issue. received that email and they didn't, mm. But some people probably would admit, I don't know, maybe they did, they disregarded it, they didn't read it properly, whatever. But the fact that you sent it, and I actually read it. (laughs) Thanks, I'm glad someone read it. No, but do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we all work in very busy environments, we get emails all the time, Mm. but I actually sat and took the time to read it and was like, But it sounds like a lot of people read it. It was interesting, one of the people that read it is someone that's become kind of special in my life, a very famous casting director named Dan Hubbard. Mm -hmm. And if you go to his IMDb, Dan casts everything. He does like Guy Ritchie's projects. He's like casting director royalty. (laughs) And um, we worked together in Kandahar and he's been very good to me and very kind to me and very supportive. And this man is so busy and he took time to write me. An assistant director I work with took time just to send me like, you know, a little heart and, you know, something like I appreciate you. Or And I think that by nature, the people that were on that email are just also compassionate people. Yeah, they get mm. it. They get it. They got it. I want to go back to the questions that I pre- yes, asked previously. Yes, now bring, bring Because this questions. is also, like, no, I'd, no, like, no. I'd like to understand, because um, you mentioned males. What were the questions? It was, you know, what more can we do as oh, men? Yeah. And secondly, how can men be more empowered to be to more supportive more. and yeah. to do more? I think that there has to be a space, not only to not be that guy. And it's hard. We've all been subjected to social pressure. I, I can't you know, condemn men for sometimes chiming into those. I've chimed into those kind of conversations, you know, that are inappropriate and later went like, why did I join in on that conversation? I think that men need to be more empowered to be like, actually, I don't think that's cool. It's just not cool. You know, or at least not laugh when they tell the sexist joke or when they talk with, be like, or if, uh, you know, someone's talking about the way a girl's looks are shaped, be like, you know, she's really smart also. Do you know that she did this? Yeah. You know, and just kind of turn the, con- at least bare minimum, turn the conversation back to her accomplishments. It was that, it was that education, wasn't it? Like we, with, um, we were talking about racism and, and, you know, it's, it's like, what was the statement? It's not banter, it's racism. Yeah. It's not banter, it's sexism. Yes. It's the not is banter, like, it's abuse. Correct. I'm not defending it in any way. The problem is because it's so institutionalized, yes. you know, it's framed as banter. 
Twitter from a very young mm. age when, you know, I'm just, I, as we talk about this, I'm thinking of like mm. male figures throughout my entire life. You know, you're kind of conditioned to to behave this way. I mean, it's not mm, acceptable yeah. at all, but that, that's primarily well, where it comes from. Do you know what I use as an example? So the very famous Omar Sharif, mm-hmm. who was married to the very famous Fatim Hammam and was married to her, you know, for many, many years. But there was interviews and jokes about what a... Um, like ladies man he was. And I say mm. ladies man because I don't know that he was, you know, a rapist or a lot of women really wanted to be with Omar Sharif because he was very good looking and very charismatic. So he was known to have lovers. Yeah. And that was part of his image and his machismo. It was almost celebrated. And celebrated yeah. despite the fact that he was also married to a very famous, very established actress who was powerful in her own right. Well, this is kind of... Sorry to interrupt you. Go on. So Omar Sharif has a grandson named Omar Sharif Jr., who is openly homosexual. Uh. And he has been skewered completely in the press because his grandfather was the womanizer of all womanizers. And he was revered as, and now how dare his grandson be gay? And so my point is, and and it's a different topic, obviously, that, but the point is, is that you've revered this man. Yeah for being a womanizer and put him on a pedestal and the shame his grandson has brought because he's, he's not, because he's gay, he's not, not upholding the machismo womanizing he's, he's image. Not, he's not being Casanova. Yeah. Sorry, it's just, as you were talking about all of this, I'm just thinking we're constantly dealing with like the hangover and the legacy of previous generations. Mm, yeah. Where it was really, that, that type of behavior, that bravado was really celebrated and encouraged. Yeah. And you wouldn't become or they wouldn't become so successful maybe in many ways if they weren't that character. 100%. You know? Well, there's, and I will not throw anybody under the bus, but there is very famous actors that I know who have made a very big career off of being macho men. And, uh, you know, most people that are close in the industry know that they are gay. Yeah. Mm. And it's like, regardless of what you think about homosexuality, like I said, that's a whole other topic, but they are capitalizing Regardless of the fact they're not even that person in real life. Yeah. But they're cashing in on it big time because that narrative is very digestible. Yeah. And that's where I think we have to start changing that narrative. You look at what I loved about, you know, Barack Obama, again, regardless of your politics, was, you know, he made it cool for people to love their wife and respect their wife and talk about how their wife's a lawyer and, you know, let, you know, Mm. just really give their wife a platform. And all of a sudden we're I want to see more leaders, more men in power. You know, you look at Bill Gates, you know, when he was married to Melinda Gates. Um, you know, we do see more powerful men al- allowing their very powerful and smart women to shine and helping them yeah. have a platform to do that. So moving into the film industry, yes. you're becoming a film producer. What, what are things that you're going to be putting in place to make sure it doesn't happen on your set? So funny you say that. Wow. So I'm excited for this one. So well, in acting, we talk about your overall objective, what's your want? And that's like, what's your want in life? And I've always said, and before it's the context of family and things like Mm. that, now I would say it's the context of the workplace. And you were to ask, what's my overall want is to provide a safe working environment for myself and others, emotionally safe, physically safe. We see with a lot of the contracts coming out of America that it has things like anti-corruption, anti-harassment. In fact, I had an incident on a set and I wrote... I feel harassed, et cetera, et cetera. And immediately, because actually we had to use that company's email addresses and it gets flagged right away. Harassment, anything. There are certain words that flagged and have to be addressed right away. And it was, and we worked through it and whatnot. But so I think that I will implement some of those things. I think that actually we were talking about this and I think that 
in the film industry, we don't usually have like an HR. Mm. I will employ somebody that will be that person to make sure that we have an emotionally safe set and that they can anonymously speak to them. Mm. And that is the number one thing, obviously contractually, but we also want to make sure it's put into practice. Now I do think there is a space Say Dan and I are working on a set together and he makes an off-the-cuff comment. He's like, woman, can you go pick that up for me? Mm -hmm. And it offends me. I think there's a space for me to have a safe person to talk to. And someone says to Dan, hey, you probably didn't mean it. And you might not know that that was offensive. But could you just not? I think there is a space that people say things and I've been inappropriate. I'm not an angel. I made a comment to a male assistant I had once. And he, he was very, you know, very proper guy and Without batting an eyelash, she goes, that was very inappropriate. And I was like, I tried not, yeah, exactly, tried not to laugh. And I was like, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That was inappropriate. So how are you, since this whole experience, because mm-hmm. before you said you just sort of shrug it off or, you yeah. know, how do you deal with it is sort of to just ignore it. Have you changed the way you deal with it now? Because I'm sure sexism has not just disappeared. Listen, incident, but incident, you know, you are gobsmacked. You are immediately, all of a sudden your mind is racing as to what else, you know, like even when that incident happened at the film festival, if I would have lashed out right then, it would have been a he said, she said. Yeah. I think I would do exactly what I did mm-hmm. is take some time, regroup. Obviously, I'm mean, physically in danger. It's different. Mm-hmm. But to then very methodically address the situation. And I think when you say, what am I doing? I'm here on this podcast. Yeah. I'm getting into producing. I tell people this all the time. If you feel, feel marginalized, you need to find a way to put yourself in a position of power so that you can control that narrative and control it hopefully for good. And you're also calling out, you're creating the, the space to have that conversation. You're creating you know, momentum. Yeah. By, just by sending the email, you know, <laughs> yeah. it created a, a reaction which, you know, hopefully will then continue into being, more positive You're, you're being the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah. Which is wonderful. You know, I think that one of the hard things is is also it's hard because a lot of noise then comes in. And that's one reason I'm trying to pick my moments. Because mm-hmm. if I just go out always blasting on social media, which I do sometimes or whatever, but both positively and negatively, I get a lot of, you know, probably, gosh, weekly, if not sometimes daily, depending, of people saying, hey, I'm going through this. Yeah. And it could be sexism. It could be, you know, cultural issues. You know, I've been in this region a long time. I also understand a lot of cultural obstacles. And I really want to be there, but I also have to protect my energy and my space. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, said, I think to put myself in a position of producing and I will hire somebody because it is a lot of energy and takes mm-hmm. a lot of mindfulness um, that that is solely their job, mm. you know, to make sure that it's done properly. Because if I'm busy doing something else, producing, yeah, if I'm busy producing, yeah. I don't want to let it bog down either my job, but also not honor that person yeah. to make sure that they're feeling but that, that is you being the change you want to see in the world. Because you're yeah. implementing. Driving it. You're yeah. driving it. You're putting things in place. Like being the change doesn't mean you personally have to do it all. Right. You're putting, you're making changes. You're sending out emails. You're calling to action. You're, you know, so getting people who, you're, you're thanking people who are doing it, which then makes them want to do it more. So you are being the change you want to see in the world. Well, um, and that's important what you said about people wanting to do it more. We were, talked a lot lately about the fact that we're kind of pack animals by mm-hmm. nature. And there's nothing more debilitating to us than going against the pack. Mm. And so if we can create a stronger pack of people that says this is not okay, then we can be that change. Mm. And it takes, 
You know, it doesn't just take one person, maybe one person to cast that first stone, but we need to create a community. But if anyone's going to create that pack, it'll be you. We're ending it there. We are. Oh, I because you could carry on actually, forever. That yeah. was brilliant. We're ending it right there. So that was definitely a good way to end it. It was a great way to end it. It was just so perfect. I'm going to say but a massive thank you. <laughs> a massive thank you. Uh, thank you Miranda, guys. thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And we should not leave it so long to catch up. Like, yes, we, 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 we keep saying we're going to catch up, so we have to make it happen. The only way we catch up is at work. Yeah, very, very true. <laughs> that's we, need, we, need, we need a social conversation. That's going to change. Message. Thanks, that's gonna thank change. you. Thank you for being so thank inspiring. You thank you for listening to Rooted Within. If you like this episode, please make sure you drop a follow so you never miss an episode in the future. Rooted Within with Lily and Dan. <laughs> <laughs>